Acts chapter 12 is a bit of a turning point uh, in the church in a couple different uh, spots. The main turning point, though, that we find here this morning as we look at the text is we see that there is an increase in not only opposition, but persecution. It's not just that uh, the Christian church in Acts chapter 12, the early church is experiencing people who don't like what they're about, but now they're experiencing actual persecution. They're, they're uh, being handled in a much more violent way in the general public. Earlier, we've seen that uh, Saul, uh, back in the earlier chapters, after the death of Stephen, he was a part of that, and it says that he ravaged the church. It, he, that was something that it was his personal mission. He felt zealous for the Lord to, to do that, and, and so he went about just destroying, dragging men and women. He wasn't a, uh, he wasn't a respecter of persons. It wasn't like, oh, we're going to be careful with the women and children, but it was just anybody, and he was just ravaging the church, but then at a point, he meets Jesus. He meets Jesus, and he goes from being a murderer to a missionary. He goes from being someone who is opposing the gospel to being the, the proclaimer of the gospel, the one that God is using. And we've gone through a bit of um, a point in the, in the book where there hasn't been too much opposition or persecution, or it's been, it's been out of view because we've seen the inclusion of the Gentiles brought in uh, just a, a couple of chapters back through this series of Peter and Cornelius and these visions that happen and the explaining of what are these about and the Jews learning to accept the Gentiles. But now uh, the camera pans back to the difficulty, the cost of discipleship, what it really means to be a Christian, what it means to actually follow Christ and to make that choice. And so we come here and we get a glimpse of that, but we also get a glimpse of God's great power in the midst of opposition, of persecution, and we see that God's hand is ultimately at work all times for his good will, that he wants to accomplish something, and it looks different to us, often uh, not how we want it to look, or sometimes we just think have different expectations, but the Lord has different plans, bigger plans. I want you to see a couple things here as we look at the text this morning. There's two men who are examples of the Lord's plans diverging in different ways. First, we come to uh, this uh, first man, one of the disciples in verse 1 and verse 2. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So here we have for us recorded, uh, this is the second Christian who is martyred, who is killed for faith in Christ, who is put to death, for the sake of the gospel. This is the second man. The first one that we saw a couple weeks ago was uh, Stephen. He is one who stood up and proclaimed the gospel. But Luke is doing something here. He, he's equating this action that has happened to uh, James, his death, his execution, but he's also weaving a story for us to see in the life of Peter, who is shortly to be persecuted. Now, he does this uh, by using these little breadcrumbs that would be familiar to 
the first century readers, maybe not so much to us, but I'm going to highlight some of them for you this morning. The first thing that we have here that I want you to take notice of is that we have a description of someone who's called a king. Now, this guy, Herod, he is a ruler of this area that they're in. Uh, Herod was a uh, governor for the Roman Empire, and so they had an empire, but he was allowed to be called king by the emperor at this time. But it's noteworthy that he's called Herod here for a couple different reasons. I want to I trace this out for you. Uh, this Herod that we speak of here is called, uh, if you look at the history books or you look at other places, this is Herod Agrippa. He ruled uh, from AD 41 to 44, and he is the grandson of Herod the Great. So, so uh, Herod the Great was kind of like the first Herod, and then we find this other guy uh, who's called Agrippa, and then there's another Herod who's called Herod the Tetrarch. And so generally in that time, you would be called more like the Tetrarch or Agrippa, and we see that reference where uh, Pilate says, you know, uh, Agrippa wants to see you, and he's like calling forth in, that, in, that, in these sorts of, um, using these titles that are not just so generalized, calling him Herod. But here's, so he leaves this first note for us, like, why is he calling him Herod here? Well, we see here that this is tracing out for us the, the, the lineage of opposition that the church has consistently faced throughout their history. We see here that the, in, the, in the chapter that Herod, the king, he laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now, this is hardly surprising because Herod is a politician, and politicians will do whatever it takes to become popular. They're going to they're gonna move with the wind, they're going to move with the waves, whatever is making them popular and keeping, them, uh, keeping the people happy, they're going to go with that. That's going to be the way that they roll. And so Herod here, he finds that opposing Christians is a great way to, uh, to gain influence. This has always been the case historically. Opposing Christians has always been a way for politicians to gain influence. And so if persecuting Christians is going to bring favor, of course, he's going to participate in that. He's ready to, to um, enjoy that activity and to keep heaping it on. Now, Luke wants us to see how prevalent this persecution is. And so he brings our attention back by using that name, Herod. Now, Herod the Great, who is, we'll, we'll go, go back a bit, he's the grandfather of Agrippa. Herod the Great is the one who had the time period around Jesus' birth. He was the one who participated in the murder of these young children, babies, two and under, in hopes that he would crush this promised Jewish king. So we have this history that is tracing out there. And if you've heard that story before, the, or if, if you think about what, what it is that's a part of that story, the, the death of young children killed, it kind of leaves echoes in our minds back to Exodus, where there's this promised deliverer that the Lord says, I'm going to rescue Israel, my people, I'm going to bring deliverance. But yet Pharaoh there, he sees that the people are growing in numbers and his independence over them is beginning to wane. He's like, hey, if, if, if we realize that I'm going to lose my empire, we're, they're, they're outgrowing us, they're outnumbering us, I'm going to lose things. So he begins to create just genocide and kill off all the male Hebrew uh, boys 
And Moses, God's deliverer, is kind of in that batch. This kind of echoes back to that for us. And I think that Luke intends for us to see that. We'll see why in a moment. Now, the, the second Herod, Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, he ruled during 4 BC to uh, AD 39. And he was the one who arrested John the Baptist and had him beheaded. He was the one who brought him forth and killed John the Baptist. And he was also a part of the crew that uh, got together with the Jews and the religious leaders and conspired to kill Jesus. And so we have this, uh, this little phrase that Luke leaves for us, like, hey, Herod the king. And, and as first century readers, they, our ears would perk up and we would say, like, oh, okay, Herod equals bad news. Like, never, nothing good is about to happen when this guy is mentioned. And so we find his continuing in that level of persecution. He, verse 2, killed the brother of James, or James, the brother of John, with the sword. So Herod's first move against the Christians in Jerusalem is to kill one of the apostles. This is the first uh, of the apostles killed with the second Christian martyr. But this for, uh, really is the fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen. Jesus said that this would happen partially because James and John, they didn't really understand what they were asking for. If you recall back in Mark chapter 10, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus and said to him, Mark chapter 10, verse 35, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Which is like, that's a loaded question right there. Treating Jesus like a genie. Hey, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And of course, their mindset is selfish. They're like, we want something awesome for us. And so Jesus says to them, what do you want me to do for you? Verse 37, and they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. And so they didn't understand that Jesus' glory is him going to the cross. Jesus is, his, his, to sit at his right hand and left is to participate in his suffering. And so Jesus said, you guys think you're able to do this, and I'm saying that, yeah, you're going to participate in this. He's making this prophetic remark for them, and here we find that James participates in that. He participates in the suffering of Christ, and I think we need to reflect on that because when we think of James being killed, why was James killed? Well, it wasn't for the political reasons. Maybe uh, for, from Herod's perspective, it was a political move. But James had to make a point in his life where he was going to say to Herod, hey, um, that thing that I, you know, I wanted to sit at Jesus' left hand and right hand, like, that, you know, I was thinking he was thinking about power, but now I understand, like, you know, he's, he's the savior of the world and he came to pay for our sins. He, he, had, to, he had to say, like, I was just, I, I misunderstood what Jesus was saying. That could have been an easy thing for him to kind of say, but he proclaimed Jesus as Lord. Not as Lord of an earthly kingdom, but of a heavenly kingdom. Of above Caesar, to whom Herod would have allegiance. He stuck to his guns. And he willingly participated in the sufferings of Christ. And so this executing of uh, James 
one of the 12 apostles, it was a purposeful and intentional attempt to destroy the church. This is uh, Herod's aim, his purpose. He wants to remove the leadership. And then we find here, verse 3, James is killed, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. So Herod, he did his best to win the favor of the Jews. They approved of this arrest and execution of James. He was like, you guys love that. I got more where that came from. So he's like, all right, let me see who else is next. He finds Peter. Peter, James, and John were together. So there, that was probably a pretty easy pickoff there. He grabs Peter. He wants to keep the executions going. But then, then Peter, or Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, he leaves for us another breadcrumb. He says this, sort of offhandedly, but in a sense to give some timing, this was during the days of unleavened bread. It's like, okay, sounds great. Thanks for that calendar marker. But this would mean more to the Jewish people. This would mean more to the first century readers because it was during the days of unleavened bread that that whole festival came about as a result of God's rescue of Israel out of Egypt. He's giving us this foreshadowing of like something might be up here. It looks like Peter's trapped. looks like there's a problem. But the unleavened bread came because God came in to rescue. And he said, hey, don't put leaven in your bread. You don't have time to wait for it to rise. Like, we're going to get out of here. And so Luke leaves this little clue for us. Verse 4, And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending, after the Passover, to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made to God Earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So Luke starts off emphasizing for us how secure Peter was. Uh, he has four squads of soldiers guarding him, which was a super wise move because just like a couple weeks earlier, he was in prison and he got out in the middle of the night. So Rome's like, look, this guy can get out at night, so we better put some guards here. We know from the last incident, it was the Lord who freed him, the Lord who let him out. But here uh, we have four squadrons uh, of soldiers guarding him. This is representative of the four different watches of the night. They would take four shifts through the night, and so this crew is, uh, of soldiers is to guard him at all times. Peter had already broken out, so he's seen as this escape artist, apparently, and this time is growing very short. We looked at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but now Luke narrows it down even more so. He says he's intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Herod wants to bring him out to the people for execution, this public execution, right after the Passover is finished. Well, we see that the Passover is one, one day in the middle, or not in the middle, but it's one day in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It, it takes place uh, there in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and he wanted to wait until after the Passover. It's a holiday. You don't want to uh, participate in this execution on that day. Uh, but when we consider the weight of the story of 
the unleavened bread, their celebration of Israel's deliverance from uh, captivity in Egypt. It's rooted in the Passover. They, Herod, he doesn't want to uh, have Peter killed prior to the Passover. He doesn't want to participate in destroying this uh, holiday that they celebrate their deliverance. But we see there that on that day, it's representative of Christ who would be punished, Christ who would be executed ultimately for our sin so that we might go free. And here, Peter is supposed to be executed. He's kept alone, verse 5, uh, or he's kept in the prison, and the church is praying for him. They're gathering together, and they are offering up their petitions to the Lord. They're asking God to work. They're still in, you know, probably in hiding a little bit at this point in private homes, um, scattered throughout. Probably the core of them are in this one house together, and they're asking the Lord to work. To, uh, we don't know what their prayers are, but it seems like they're a little bit confused. It seems like their prayer, their, their prayers are, are, are maybe a little small. Some people are probably praying bigger prayers, like, Lord, like, let's, let's let Peter out. But it seems like most of them are like, let Peter be faithful. Let Peter be faithful unto death. Let him stand strong in the midst of difficulty when he has to face the executioner. Let him be faithful and not deny your name, but proclaim the risen Christ. Let him be, it seems like a lot of the prayers are focused there. And I'm, no doubt some of them are probably straying out into the, like, it would be awesome if he was free and they just decided for no reason, like, you should let him out. Because that's how we think as people. We don't think so, so large. We think, like, what is the logical thing that could happen? Like, he's basically dead. And let's make this happen. James has already died. James has been killed off. We already lost one. Here's the next one. So help him in the midst of this. But Luke records for us that they are praying earnestly here. It's the Lord that works in the midst of our prayers to know what our deeper desires are. We've talked about this before. Oftentimes, we pray for things that are surface issues, but they have a source problem, and the Lord meets our requests according to His will, and He meets those source problems. One of the things that we've talked about, we mentioned before, is a lot of times when you're in a jam, you're, you need money, you're praying for money, oh Lord, like I have bills coming up, I need like a paycheck, I need a job, I need some more hours at work, whatever it is that you're praying for, there's a surface problem of you've got to pay your bills, but the the source problem is that you, you just feel insecure. You, you don't feel safe because you don't have the resources to meet your needs. And so oftentimes what God wants to point out to you, what he wants you to know is that he is your safety. He is your security. He's the one who has all resources and he can provide whenever he wants. And so we pray smaller prayers when we should root our prayers in God's character. Lord, you are my safety. You are my security. You are my provider. And you know what I need. And so give me what I need according to your will. See, it's a difference because we're going to God as the ultimate prize, as our ultimate treasure, and not making him a means by which we achieve some end, by which we acquire goods that we need. Jesus is ultimately the treasure that we are after. And he has given himself to us fully and completely without reservation. And so we chase after him, wanting to know him and enjoy him more. 
And so in this prayer meeting, the church is facing the realities of Peter's uh, imprisonment. He, they're, they're coming face to face with this. They, his release probably feels like a long shot. And Luke has told us that there are four watches of guards earlier highlighting the security for us, like this is like maximum security at this level. Release seems impossible. Now we come to verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So Luke, again, he stresses for us the security. He's like, Peter's like stuck between two soldiers. He's sleeping. He's bound with two chains, not one, two. And there are also more guards, these sentries, before the door guarding the prison. So he's basically surrounded. But Peter, on the night before his execution, is found sleeping. He's found sleeping. Because he has confidence about his future. He has confidence about who he is. He knows that he can trust the sovereignty of God. He knows that he does not have to worry about tomorrow because Christ has already purchased his soul. He has made him his own. Do you remember the last time that Peter was found sleeping? It was when Jesus is praying. And he's like, I'm going to go in a little bit deeper. Why don't you pray, Peter? And Peter and the boys, they all fall asleep. And Jesus comes back and he's like, hey, could you, could you, could you have prayed with me? Like, could you not have stayed up a little bit and prayed? He doesn't attack him. He doesn't say like, oh, Peter, you blew it. You see, Jesus knew that that would happen. But Jesus stayed awake all night in the garden praying for strength, praying that he would do the will of the Father so that in this moment, Peter could sleep soundly. That he didn't have to stay up praying, worrying about his life, his anxiety, his worry, his fear. He didn't have to stay up trying to figure out, how am I going to get out of here? Who's going to take care of my family? What's going to happen with my friends? What, all the things that are worrying him and, and causing the stress upon his life, he didn't have to stay awake. Because Jesus had already stayed awake for him. In Gethsemane, praying. Helping him find identity in Christ. And so Peter doesn't have to be worried. He trusts the sovereignty of God. This is something that, uh, if, if this is, if you deal with this sort of thing, like you just have like anxiety and worry and fear, I, I think oftentimes we look at the biblical characters and we're like, oh, they were like rock stars, they were superstars. But it's not the case when we, especially when we see guys like David, he seems super moody. He's King David. He like loves the Lord, but then all of a sudden he's like, oh, I'm falling apart. The world, everything's collapsing around me. I'll give you one example here. And I would encourage you, if you're that person, you should push into the Psalms to look at and learn from the lives of, this, uh, of David and the other psalmists. But here's one from Psalm 3. In this moment, David's identity is being challenged. He was the king, but Absalom comes in and he's overthrowing David's kingdom, and he's turned the king, uh, Absalom's turned the kingdom against him, and David's on the run for his life. He's facing death. And here's his prayer to the Lord in the midst of this. Psalm 3, verse 1, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. He's like, I'm, I'm closed in. I'm on the run. Everyone's against me, and they're saying, like, he's never going to get away. He's done for. 
who he is is smashed to pieces. But he says this, he he refocuses attention upon the Lord. Verse 3, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. You see, David there understands my identity as the king is not going to sustain me in this situation. He says, you, Lord, are my glory. You are the one who is weightier than I. You are the one who will see me through this difficulty. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. You see the heart of the psalmist there? He's like, he is stressed out. He's worried. He's fearful. He's anxious. And then he sets his eyes upon the Lord. He says, you, O Lord, are the shield about me, the glory, my glory, the lifter of my head. He cries out to the Lord. The Lord answers. And then he says, and then I, I slept. I lay down and I slept. When you have anxiety and worry and fear and you're dealing with difficulties, it causes sleepless nights because you're just like, you know, you ever like in bed and then all of a sudden like you're grabbing your phone, like Googling like what your problem is. You're on WebMD, like, oh, dang, like what is this? And like everything points to cancer because that's how WebMD works. It's like they just want to cover their bases to make sure you get into the doctors. <laughs> that's just, yeah. Uh, but this, this is like the, the idea. You're there, you're by yourself. All of a sudden it's like you're typing weird stuff into Google trying to like solve your problem. And then you don't sleep. But David says the key is to set your eyes upon Jesus. You lay down, you sleep, you rest. And then the Lord will wake you up. He doesn't know when he goes to sleep that, the, that those guys aren't going to find him. But he, knows, he says, the Lord awoke me. He protected me. He was with me. And so Peter, in this same situation, he's sleeping here, guarding, uh, being guarded. Verse 7, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and, shone, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. So an angel shows up, shakes Peter awake, tells him, Get up quickly. The chains fall off his hands. I think it's kind of funny. Like, he's, he's sleeping so good that, like, the angel has to, like, hit him. He's like get up, come on, let's go. You know, it's very reminiscent of my mom waking me up in high school because I was just like, get out of here. And the angel's like, let's go. So he tells them, get up quickly and the chains fall off his hands. Speed, haste, get up quickly. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. Again, a parallel with the Exodus. The escape from the, uh, of the Israelites from Egypt after this Passover night happened quickly. We're told the instructions in Exodus chapter 12, as they had this unleavened bread, in this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. It's like, you got to be dressed to go, and you're going to eat it fast. Boom, 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 boom. Get up quickly, Peter is told. Chains fall off. God frees Peter, allows these chains to fall off his hands. I want you to see this. Peter does nothing to contribute to his freedom. He's actually sleeping. He's not participating. The angel has to like actually work harder to wake him up. And he's still not even aware that he's being freed. He does nothing to participate except obey what God has told him to do. So the angel comes, tells him to do stuff, and Peter's like, uh, okay, 
Oh, all right, this, let's, okay, let's do this. He doesn't do anything but respond to the Lord. Verse 8, and the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so and said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. So again, similar to the Exodus, they're to have their sandals on, belt fastened, ready to go. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. So Peter follows the angel out of the prison. He's fully convinced that this is a vision and not reality, which if I was convinced it was a vision, I would just be like messing around, like this isn't real, like slapping the guards, like, ah, you know, like I, that's just how I would be if this, if this was like a real vision. I, I was convinced, but the Lord helped him not do that. Um, and so they make their way out. He continues to obey, even though he doesn't even think this is real. He obeys. Look at verse 10. When they, passed, when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. So they passed the first guard, like breath held. Passed the second guard. Oh, okay, rest there. Now we're at the iron gate leading into the city. And uh, this gate is likely... Um, or the spot that, that he's being held is likely in the Antonia Fortress, which is like on the corner of the Temple Mount. So it's like this huge fortress that was there. And then one gate went into the Temple Courts, the Court of Gentiles there. And then the other gate went the opposite way into the city. So he could have gone either way. And so he goes and the angel leads him out into the city. Then the angel, uh, or they come to the gate. It opens for them of its own accord. And they went out. And went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. So the angel goes with him just one block, and then all of a sudden leaves him. Verse 11, when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So Peter finally recognizes that this isn't a vision, like this is really happening. He finally comes, uh, comes to, and he recognizes that this is the Lord at work. This is not fake. This isn't a dream. This isn't a vision. This is the Lord at work. And so he makes a declaration. He says, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. He knew what they were expecting. He knew that, they, that he was opposed by Herod. He knew what happened to James. And he finally comes to the realization, like, I'm, I'm, I'm out. I'm free. So we come to verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, so, uh, where many were gathered together and were praying. So he goes to Mark's mother's house. The early church uh, likely met there often. Um, they were gathered together for him in prayer. They're lifting him up. Uh, a huge, important aspect of the early church. And then we come to verse 13. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. So Peter, he rolls up, he knocks at the, this outer gateway, the outer entrance, and he's met by, by the servant girl, Rhoda. She's on the other side. Clearly, um, it says she recognizes his voice, so there's no, like, uh, Lord of the Rings, like, little, like, sliding door thing so you can see who's there. She just is like, he's like, hey, it's Peter, and she's like, oh, okay. So she, she's like, she can't believe it. She recognizes his voice. She's overjoyed. 
And she just runs off, just takes off, like leaving Peter there in the street, which would probably was super confusing for Peter because he didn't see that she just ran away. He just, she just was like excited and then gone. And Peter's like, what's going on? This is super weird. She just leaves him, leaves him hanging. She goes in. She recognizes Peter's voice. She goes back to report that the prayers have been answered. But their response is unbelief. They, they don't even believe what she's saying. The church is convinced that she is nuts. She's crazy. This is, this is what they tell her. She goes in and they tell her, you are out of your mind. You are nuts. You're mental. You're losing it. We've been praying for a long time. You've been up super late. We're all here. You've been on your feet for too long. You need to eat something. Whatever it is, it's like you are crazy. Rhoda, you fell off the deep end. It's like you're gone. But she kept insisting it was so. So they kept saying, it's his angel. They're like, okay, look, like if you're not going to be quiet, like we're just going to give you something to make you be quiet. Like give you a little crumb. Like, okay, like maybe there was something there. It's just, it's his angel. So the Jews believed in this idea of guardian angels. Um, they, they believed that uh, oftentimes that your guardian angel would resemble you. It would look exactly like you. And so he's like, look, like it's, it's just Peter's guardian angel that's actually calling forth. It's, it's not actually uh, Peter who's there. But she didn't even see him. She only recognizes his voice. They aren't listening to her. They're dismissing her claims that God has brought freedom to Peter. And Peter, meanwhile, he's still stuck outside. Verse 16, Peter, continuing knocking. I mean, he's in chains all night, so I'm sure that he's got some energy. He's like, I've just been sleeping, resting. He's knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. So Peter, he keeps trying to get their attention. Finally, finally they respond. They open, they saw him, they're amazed. And then Peter takes the opportunity to connect his freedom, his deliverance, his release with their earnest and fervent prayer. He connects the dots for them. He describes to them how the Lord brought him out of prison. It says here, they see him and were amazed. And then we find... Verse 17, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. When someone's freed from a difficult situation, it's easy to get into the details and try to make a formula out of that story because you're like okay look if i'm ever in a tough time i gotta figure out like what are the things that you did so that way i can use your your experience and your tools to get out of there but peter changed transformed by the lord when they see him they're floored they're amazed and before they can even get in there and start asking these questions like hey like what's happening he, he uses, it says, he motioned to them with his hand to be silent. This was a uh, Roman uh, orator's type of motion, a gesture that would be used. It's like some this movement, movement of your hand that kind of told the crowd, like, just like, I'm about to talk, be quiet. They had these different things that the, orator, the orators of that day could use to communicate what they were, uh, to, to like use like exclamation points and things like that. 
because they also had to talk loud at all times so everybody could hear because they didn't have amplification. So uh, he motions to them to be silent, and he doesn't allow them to ask questions, but he goes straight in to connecting his release to God's work. He wants God to be glorified immediately, and he doesn't want anyone to form an opinion or formula at how this was done. He wants them to straight away understand that this was purely the hand of God. And this is how God works. When God is glorified, he's glorified when his people acknowledge him, and they, they confess his work in their lives, especially in answer to prayer. Right? That's the whole point of praise reports. That's the whole point of us sharing about uh, how God has answered our prayers because we gain confidence. We, gain, we, we are inspired when we hear God working in the lives of others. It's important for us also to note that it is God's sovereignty that is at work. God has a plan. Because it would be easy to look at this and be like, well, how come they didn't work when we prayed for James? Because he got killed and Peter got out. Did we, like, not do it right? But God's plan, his sovereignty is at work here in the life of the church. His plan, which we don't ever really, we don't get the full insight of God's heart on why he chose to do this, but we see how God used Peter in a specific way, and we see that the church in, in Jerusalem also begins to grow as the result of James's death, the persecution. We see faithfulness, and he isn't willing to bow to Rome. We see the truth of the statement that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, that it continues to grow and proliferate as people are martyred for Christ. Peter makes it known that this is God's work. God should be glorified. And then he says this, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. So what's the deal with James? Because like, didn't he just get killed? And all of a sudden, it's like, tell James uh, and the brothers. The James that he's speaking of here is James, the brother of Jesus, not James, the brother of John, who has just been killed. This is James, the brother of Jesus. Another question is, like, why, why is Peter not just telling himself? Like, you're there, he's there, we're all there. But Peter's leaving. He's getting out of there. He's trying to avoid being rearrested by Herod and uh, being brought down by the Jews, and God's led him out to another spot. And so James, the brother of Jesus, takes over as one who is leading the church in Jerusalem. And so he communicates his wishes here to the early church before he jams out. This chapter is helpful for us in so many ways. But I think the, one, the, the way that, that we ought to look at it is that both men, both James, who was killed for his faith, and both Peter, who were rescued from execution, both of these men had identities that were firm and strong 
in Christ. They weren't primarily fishermen. They weren't even primarily leaders of the church, but they were in love with Jesus. Their identity was to know Jesus and to enjoy him. One apostle, James, he's executed. Another's rescued. And for the early church, and for us, it helps us to see that we have to live in this tension of God's sovereignty. It would be nice, it would be awesome if we had the plan. If we had the plan together, like, okay, here's all, everything that God wants to do. And we would just walk down that path, checking it off. But the whole point of walking with Christ is that we don't know. And so it doesn't make accomplishing the plan the goal. It makes knowing God the goal. The only way you can walk with God is if you know him, if you walk alongside him. You can't go to him and check in and be like, okay, so what's next? And then you go off on your own. That's not the way that God works. Of primary, the primary thing that we're to be about is a relationship with him, knowing him. And so when we live in this tension, it causes us to rely on the Lord. It causes us to go through each situation in life, each circumstance that we encounter, not with a, a playbook, not with a preconceived idea about how we want to approach it, but checking in with the Lord each, each spot, each step along the way, like, is this, is this the way we're going? When we walk with him, we will never be alone. When we walk with him, we will always be secure. For James, they took his life, but they didn't separate him from the Lord. More than ever, he was with Christ. Peter was freed. He was in jail. He was never separated from the Lord. In jail, he was freed. He's going to leave the church in Jerusalem now. But he won't be separated from the Lord. When we walk with Christ, we have safety and security. So nothing can separate us from his love. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful. We're thankful for the example of these two faithful men of James and John who have given uh, their lives to know you, who have given uh, their lives for the sake of the gospel. We're thankful, Lord, that we see their faithfulness to you, but they only have that faithfulness because of your faithfulness to them. Lord, and we're so thankful that we can have confidence in you. We have that same faithfulness uh, that we can trust in, Lord. We can rely on your goodness to us because you have been faithful again and again, Lord. You've demonstrated that faithfulness at the cross. And so we know, Lord, that in these small things that we deal with in life, you will be with us again and again, step for step. We're so thankful that we can trust you. And so, Lord, would you grow our faith in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of circumstances that are unfavorable, in the midst of, of anxiety and worry and fear, in the midst of new seasons? when things seem like they're falling apart, Lord, in all of those situations, and even when things seem good, Lord, we need to rely upon you. We need to grow in faith. 
Lord, we know that that can't happen apart from you. We want to be found safe and secure with you, finding our identity in you primarily, Jesus. Work in us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. We need you so desperately. We love you. Amen.